Take your Bibles, turn with me to Joshua chapter 7. That's where we're going to be tonight. Just as a quick review, remember last time, the people of Israel surrounded Jericho and walked around the city 13 times in total in a period of seven days. And on the seventh day, when they did that seven times in a row, blowing the trumpets, and at the last trumpet blast, they were told by Joshua to shout a great shout, and when they did, Jericho's walls fell down. It was all according to what God had directed Joshua to do. As strange as it seemed, and as impossible as it appeared that the walls could be impacted by such a thing, they were, I believe, uh, just overwhelmed with the miraculous event that took place in the ease with which they took the city of Jericho. No fight left in the city's citizens. There was absolutely no resistance, and they were easily able to take the city. So now they've conquered the first city in the territory of Canaan. The next one is a much smaller city, and that smaller city is just to the west of Jericho, going up the mountain range toward the area north of Jerusalem, toward Bethel. And Ai is the name of that city, as we have it in our English translation. Ha'ai is the Hebrew name for it, but it is a much smaller city. And as a result of their conquest of Jericho and recognizing that the city of Ai was so much smaller, they make some decisions in this chapter that we have before us, and unfortunately, they're not good decisions. Now, we briefly looked at it as we read the very first verse of chapter 7 the last time. Now, we read that verse again to remind us of where we left off. It says in verse 1 of chapter 7, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the angel, or the anger rather, of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Take note of the two things that are mentioned here. The first thing is the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. Not just Achan, although Achan is the perpetrator, God attributes the act that Achan does to the entire nation, which is really quite amazing and interesting to me. I hope it's something that we can focus a little bit of time on because I believe it's so very important. We've mentioned in the past that the Apostle Paul tells us very clearly, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And when there's sin in the camp and sin isn't dealt with, the entire population uh, ultimately will be held responsible for it because they are to make sure that nobody, their neighbor, their cousins, their uncles, their nephews, their parents, their children, nobody in their immediate family or in the tribe or in all of the tribes, if they're found to be sin among the people, sin must be dealt with. And what is being referred to with this 
translation in my Bible, the accursed things. It's the things offered up to God. It's the things that God said belong to him. Remember, when God told Joshua to take the city, he said, you shall not take any of the spoils for yourselves. They are mine. They're the first fruits, if you will, to God of an offering unto him and that spoils for us to go into the treasury of the temple, which would ultimately be built. But the tabernacle still needed resources to function. The Levites who ministered in the tabernacle needed to have some means of getting the food and clothing that they needed because they did not and would not inherit any of the land. They were chosen by God to only serve in the tabernacle and later in the temple. So they needed that resource, the monies, the silver, the gold, and the clothing and whatever else they could get, the animals, all of the spoils would go this time to the Lord. After that, the Lord would most often allow them to take the spoils of the conquering. So this one city, Jericho, was a very wealthy city. It was uh, very affluent and that spoil that they took was probably very, very massive. And here it is again, the accusation made by the Lord that a sin has been committed. Not only a sin, but a trespass. Now, the difference between a trespass and a sin is kind of subtle. All trespasses are sins, but not all sins are trespasses. A sin can be done without actually knowing that a sin is being committed. It's not an intentional sin, in other words. It could be just, oops, I shouldn't have done that. The man who sins realizes it's a sin, and then he brings a sin offering to the Lord. That's a voluntary offering unto the Lord. A trespass, trespass however, is far different, because a trespass is a sin that is deliberate. You've all seen signs on the sides of roads, no trespassing. The intent of the sign is to prevent people from going onto the property where those signs appear. Now, if you are a hunter and you have come across one of those no trespassing signs, but you know there's deer in those woods, there's a great temptation to go into those woods and trespass against the owner of the property. That's a sin. And it's an intentional sin. You've crossed over a line intentionally. And that's what they have done as a nation, mind you. The entire nation, God is saying, are guilty of a trespass sin because although one did it, they all are held responsible for it. So that's the thing that has angered the Lord. But that's not only that which is a problem. Remember, they sought the Lord for direction before they conquered the city of Jericho. They were listening to the commands of God and they obeyed extensively all of the details that God had given through Joshua and they didn't miss one single command of the Lord in obedience to that. And as a result, he blessed them with a very, very powerful demonstration of his glory in the way that he is going to take care of them every time they depend upon him. That's significant. 
Because here in this portion, we're going to find that they did none of that. And as a result of that, as well as the result of sin in the camp at the hand of Achan. We'll see both of those things demonstrated here in this chapter. Verse 2 of chapter 7 again begins now with regard to the city of Ai. It says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. He's doing the same thing with Ai that he did with Jericho. Although with Jericho he sent two men. Here we're not told how many men, but he just sent some men from Jericho to Ai to do the same thing, to spy out the defenses of the city, to give us sense for uh, you know, what kind of opposition they're going to be having when they get there. Now, there's no indication here at all that Joshua sought the Lord in the process that now moves forward. It says in verse 3, And those men returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not worry all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. That's presumption. That's arrogance. That's self-confidence. That's sin. And God did not intend for them to approach the city of Ai in this fashion. But instead of Joshua saying to the men, no, 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 we've got to go to the Lord for us as we must do every time we move, Joshua apparently thought, well, hey, you know what? That sounds easy. Let's go ahead and do it. Now, we put ourselves in the driver's seat when we're facing something that's easy, and that's wrong. Anything that's whether easy or hard, we should go to the Lord before we take that step and make sure that we know through His Word or through prayer that it is a safe thing to do, that it is the right thing to do. And He does give us instruction through counsel from other believers and through prayer, through the reading of His Word, revealing to us His will in any matter when we seek Him. He tells us very clearly, Seek and you shall find. And that is the thing that he wants us to do. You ask for wisdom because he is the one who gives wisdom. You ask for understanding because he is the one who gives understanding. That's a thing that we can trust our God in. Now, that was not what is done here. And there's a sad story ahead for the people of Israel as a result of that sin of presumption and a sin of self-ability uh, or confidence. Here we go. Verse 4, it says, So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And all the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. See how easily things can get turned around so quickly. The people of Ai had one advantage. They were on an elevated position. Those who hold the high ground in a battle tend to have an advantage. That was very much the case with regard to the men of war in those days. And Ai took 
advantage of that. They probably would have been very fearful of the people of Israel had Joshua done what was supposed to have been done. Go to the Lord and inquire of the Lord what approach they should take. But he agreed with the men to say, okay, 3,000, that sounds reasonable, let's do it. And as a result, as they approached, the men of Ai were strengthened among the men who were standing at one time in fear of the Israel people because they only saw a much smaller contingency and they figured, hey, we've got an advantage. Let us not worry about this small group of Israelites because they aren't going to outnumber us and they're on the lower end of this hillside. We can take them down. And they did. And as a result, the children of Israel were so very, very discouraged, their hearts melted within them. They became melted like water melts. Uh, I suppose that's a good illustration. Their hearts melted and became like water. Well, there's a good reason for that. They were wrong in what they had done. But Jericho was such an amazing victory. How could this possibly have happened? Well, Joshua needs to find out. And so in verse 6, the Lord reveals to us that this is what Joshua's reaction to all of this was. Verse 6 says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. You see what's happened? He's lost faith in his God. He's starting to think, God, you've deserted us. He's starting to think that God is not going to go with us as he had said. But if you go back to what God had said to Joshua in the earlier chapters, on more than one occasion, God did say, I will be with you. I will show you the way. In other words, Joshua, if you ask me, I will give you the details of how you are to approach every single conquest of the entire land of Canaan. I'm reminded when David, much later on in Israel's history, when David the king went to war, before he did so, he almost always asked the Lord, do you want us to go up to fight against the Philistines or whoever it was that they were fighting against? And he waited for God's answer. He waited for God's instruction. There were times when David did things without God's help And that always turned into a disaster, just like it did here with Joshua. An example of that would be when David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the place where it was to the city of Jerusalem. And they put it on a cart, and they were celebrating all the way from where it was, I believe, in Shiloh, all the way to Jerusalem. And everybody was rejoicing until the Ark hit a rock, and the cart started to tip over, and a man reached out his hand and tried to keep the ark from falling over. And when he did, he was killed instantly. That turned out to be a very disastrous thing for David. He ended up going back to Jerusalem, crying out to the Lord, why did this happen? He finally got the answer. He didn't ask for the right method. 
There is a means by which the ark must be moved. He went to the Word of God and he found the answer. And then he did again a second time all of that which God had intended for them to do in the first place, but in the right way. And they brought the ark to Jerusalem safely and securely. And it was the way that God intended for them to carry that ark by the Levites on the poles that are extended through the ark, not on a cart pulled by two oxen. Well, here again, Joshua is experiencing the same kind of problem. And he goes to the Lord and he seeks the Lord to find out what's going on. Why did this happen? And then he says again, after having made that appeal in verse 8, O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of this and they'll surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So, Joshua was really pouring it on here. He's saying, Lord, don't you know that this affects you? And it would if that had been the consequence. But God was teaching them something here. And they were going to take Ai, as we would see if we were to read into chapter 8 tonight. I'm not sure that we will. But what I do want to say is that God still has a plan and he's still moving forward with it. But He's only going to go if Joshua lets him go first. And so he's asking these questions of the Lord. Why did this happen? And, and what about the Canaanites? Will they be strengthened and encouraged by this defeat of the people of Israel? Keep in mind, there were only 36 men who were killed in this battle. That's not good. But if you read through the entire book of Joshua, which we will do, the Lord willing you are going to find that no other city defeated Joshua and his armies. There's no record in the entire rest of the book of Joshua of any Israelites being killed in the battle. This is the one and only time where it is recorded. Now, that's not to say that there weren't any injuries or no you know, deaths at all. We don't know that for certain. But it's the only place where it's recorded that there have been tragic deaths as a result of their disobedience. Now they're going to find out from God, I want you to do it this way. And from now on, Joshua is going to do it his way. That does not mean, though, that Joshua won't make other mistakes. As we will see later on in the text, there is another issue that comes up where Joshua didn't really take advantage of going to the Lord first. And again, presumption is a very, very serious issue for us as well. I hope you understand that. We should never presume anything of God. We should always go to the Lord and seek His will. He encourages us to do that. He wants us to go to Him. And He is always there. He will answer. It may not be in the way that we want, it may not be in the timing of when we want it, but he does always lead his people when they seek his face. We can trust him in this. You know, over and over and over again in the book of Psalms and elsewhere, the writers of the Old Testament especially declare that I trust in the Lord. My trust is in the Lord. My hope is in the Lord. My strength is in the Lord. That is how we should always approach 
our relationship with God also. And let it be so for all of us that we would not allow sin in the camp. And that's our responsibility, not just the pastor, but all of our responsibility, by the way. Whenever there is sin in the body of Christ, it needs to be brought out into the open. We all need to be careful how we approach it. It needs to be done in love. Remember, Jesus said, hey, when you go to approach the guy with a speck in his eye, you've got to first take out the log in your eye. You make sure that you're on the right track in your own life with regard to sin. Don't think yourself more highly than you ought, Paul tells us. And that's a very, very serious thing. We need to understand that we approach it with a desire to reach that individual, to convict that one by the Spirit of God that there is sin that needs to be dealt with. And when it is done appropriately and in the right way, it is always a blessing and almost always will result in that one turning from his sin. And if not, then that one needs to be just simply left aside, not welcome in the fellowship until he or she changes his style of life or his willingness to continue in that sin. That's how it's dealt with. That's how it would have been dealt with if AI had been approached by the people of God in the right way, if they hadn't assumed that they could take the city of Ai the way they thought they could. So now we've got some correcting that needs to be done. And the very first thing is God correcting Joshua. In verse 10 he says, and this is very sternly written here, and I believe it was the very stern thing that God is saying to Joshua, just as he had done with Moses. He says in verse 10, So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why do you lie on your face? So God is saying, Come on, Joshua. Get over this. There's work to be done. Let's get it straight. I'm still in control, and I want you to get things right from this point on. So get up, and let's get this thing rolling the way it's supposed to. So verse 11 he says, first of all, this is God speaking, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. So that's a very serious thing. The whole nation, remember, they have been against the Lord in transgression. Very serious. Very, very wrong for them to have allowed that to happen. It's a covenant that he had made with them, and they transgressed that covenant. Because, he says, for they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Now, he's talking in the plurality form here, and take note of the fact that all of Israel is being charged with this sin of Achan, who is the only one of all of Israel that actually did this. Now, Achan must have probably had accomplices. His immediate family, as we will find out, are going to be judged along with him. And so it's very likely that they too were part of the process involved here in taking some of the spoil. But he says, they deceived and have put among their own stuff all the spoil that was dedicated to the Lord. Verse 12 says, Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies. It wouldn't be possible for them to do so because of the sin. 
but they turned their backs before their enemies because they had become doomed to destruction. That's pretty serious stuff. You will not win a battle for the Lord. The battle always is the Lord's. He is the one who will go forward and win the battle on your behalf. But they didn't realize that. I hope that we all do. But he says, they're doomed to destruction because of that. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. That's pretty serious. It has to be dealt with. Sin has to be removed, taken out. It has to be destroyed. No evidence of it must continue to exist within the camp of Israel. So he tells Joshua, this is what you must do. Verse 13, get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. That's a consecration. We've seen that before. It's a setting apart of yourselves unto the Lord in holiness, righteousness. Cleanse yourselves from your unrighteous ways. Get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accused, accursed thing in your midst, of, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. It's a terrible thing to do something as heinous as this was unto the Lord. Take note of the fact that God says, first of all, you're going to separate them by tribes. And you're going to, I'm going to select a tribe. Now, it doesn't say in this translation, it may in others, I believe it does, and perhaps the New American and possibly the NIV, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it apparently is the drawing of lots. So I believe that in some of your translations, it does say uh, they will come by lot according to their families, according to their household, and according to the one man that I choose. So then Joshua, in verse 16, rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken, chosen by Lot. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites, and he brought the family of the Zarhites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Now think about how the guilt that a Ha, uh, that Achan, or Achan, rather, must have felt. And by the way, Achan is a name that was given to him apparently at birth, and the name is based upon a root which means trouble. So Achan is trouble for the nation of Israel. Appropriate name for this man. But Zabdi, his father, was taken. And then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, was taken. There's no escape when God is involved in weeding out the sin from among the people. 
Verse 19 says, Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, I implore you, in other words, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now, it may be true that Achan does confess his guilt. And you might believe that, well, since he confessed his guilt, shouldn't God have forgiven him? Well, are you hopefully in a position, I don't think you are, but hopefully if you were thinking you were in a position to question God's choices, and I think you need to understand that he's God and you're not. I know that there is a sense in all of us that thinks, oh, wow, that's really, really harsh punishment. Couldn't he have just let him confess and then forgiven him and shown his glory through that? Possibly, but he chose not to. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, Behold both the severity and the gentleness of your God. In regard to the way that he handles the taking out of the branches from among the vine and putting others in in his place. That's God's choice. He does, he does that. He chooses to. He uses these kinds of things as a demonstration of his justice and his right justice, his perfect justice. He is the judge of all men and sin must be judged harshly. We have a New Testament example of that same very thing. Remember Ananias and Sapphira on the very early days of the church when they were selling all of their properties and bringing the uh, sale money to the apostles and laying them at the apostles' feet so they could distribute among the people in an equitable way. That didn't last, and I'm not really absolutely certain that it was the right thing for them to do, but that's what they were doing. And it tells us in the book of Acts that this couple sold a property that they owned and they withheld a portion of what they sold it for to keep for themselves. Kind of like Achan stuffing it in the ground for a rainy day and they were caught by Peter. Peter comes to them and says, did you sell your property for such and such? And he says, yeah, that's right. That's what we did. And Peter knew by the Spirit of God that they sold it for much more than that. They were lying not to men, Peter says, but to God. And as a result, when he approached, first of all, Ananias and confronted him with that sin, Ananias dropped dead on the spot. His wife, Sapphira, comes in later, and he asks her the same question. She gives the same answer. They both could have confessed, but they did not. Would God have forgiven them? I don't think that would have been a problem in the New Testament era of grace. Perhaps, but we're not told. The truth of the matter is, she lied to the God of Israel as well, and she dropped dead. Two New Testament examples of the severity of God against sin. Now, you can go through the New Testament and you can see sin being dealt with on a very regular basis throughout the New Testament Scriptures. It's consistent with God's will. Sin must be dealt with. Here in the book of Joshua, sin is being dealt with, and he already told Joshua what was going to be the result of their finding out who it was who did this deed. 
because he already told Joshua he will die. So Achan did say, it says in verse 20 again, he answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. Take note of the process. He saw with the eye, in his heart he desired, and he acted out that desire. All three lead to and result in sin. The first one is not sin in and of itself. We see with our eyes. A lot of people refer to it as the eye gate. Whatever comes into our eyes, we process. It's up to what we do with what we see that makes a difference. In his case, what he saw, he desired. Kind of like Eve in the garden. She saw the fruit and she took it because she desired it. The lust of the eye. And it caused Achan, as it did with Eve, it caused Achan to have a desire in his heart. Remember back in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and following where Jesus talked about such things. His approach to the law was that he would say, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. I say, if you think of it in your heart, you have already done it. What Jesus is saying is, the sin doesn't start in the action, it starts in the desire to do that which you are going to do. If you stop it there, it won't manifest itself in action. That's what we need to remember. The I, the desire, and the action. All three are very important as we deal with sin in our own lives. And when we do sin, listen, beloved of God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And God has promised us, without any doubt, when we confess our sins unto Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we must confess our sins. Now, there are many things that the church has done to confuse the idea of confession. You go to the Father in a Catholic church, confess your sins in a booth. That's not what God is speaking of here. He's saying, bring it to me. I want to hear you come to me and confess your sin to me. What the word confess means is come into an agreement with what God says. Confession, in other words, is basically saying, God is right, I'm wrong, I am confessing that I have sinned, and my confession is an agreement with God about that particular sin. That's what confession is. Hupomone is the Greek word. It's two words combined together, hupo and mone. And if you look those words up, it is indeed agreeing with another. That's what it means. So, he has confessed. He has shown exactly what he has done. Now, verse 22 says, So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent, with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. So he did tell them, 
The proof has been provided. Now the decision that God has already made will be done. It says in verse 24, Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. Everything that was in his belongings was included, including his children. Whoever lived in his tent, whatever was part of that tent, needed to be completely eliminated. That's the harshness of God's judgment against sin, my friends. Verse 25 says, And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with the stones. And then they raised over him a great heap of stones, and still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, and therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. The Valley of Achor. Interestingly, the name implies trouble. That's literally what it means. It's part of the same root that we get Achan's name. Achor is exactly the same wording, and they named it the Valley of Trouble. That's what it's named to the day of this particular writer, which may have been Joshua, but it might have also been somebody later, like Ezra, perhaps, who wrote this particular text. We're not told who wrote it, but we are told a great deal of how God functions with his people that he wants to bring into the land. He successfully brought them into the land. Now he wants to give them success in conquering all of the people groups that are in the land. They will be very, very successful. But there will be some things that they don't do right. And it's not all Joshua's fault. But Joshua will be responsible for a few other mistakes that he will make along the way. We'll see that as we move forward in the text. Regarding the city of Ai, that's yet to come. There's another way that God had intended for them to take this city. Chapter 8 will give us all of that detail. And we'll look at that the next time, the Lord willing. Till then, grace and peace. God bless.